As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Jensen Button finally ended his long wait for a first F1 win in memorable style at the 2006 Hungarian Grand Prix, coming through from 14th on the grid to win a chaotic and rare rain-affected race at the Hungara Ring. As we'll explore, there was more to this victory than just sheer good fortune, and beyond Button's eye-bulging celebrations in Park Ferme, this was a race with plenty of other storylines, including an escalation in what was becoming an increasingly tense championship battle between Renault's Fernando Alonso and Ferrari's Michael Schumacher. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back on everything going on in F1 around the time of this race from F1's V8 era, plus all the action that took place once the lights went out on the Sunday, are Ed Straw and Scott Mitchell, who will hopefully avoid turning this episode of Bring Back V10s into a takeover for the Race F1 podcast, <laughs> where you can normally hear them together. So Ed, I will come to you first, basically to tell you not to default into hosting the show and asking Scott questions about F1 in 2023. When you think of the 2006 Hungarian Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it wasn't a race I saw live because I was racing an MX-5 at Snetterton at the time. But what I <laughs> what I remember about it, I think I'd probably watch the highlights in the evening, is obviously I was at Autosport at the time and the wait for Button's first win, because obviously a British driver doing well on the cover is always popular and he'd had Mansell and he'd had Hill and Button had been around for kind of years and everyone was waiting for that breakthrough. And so it was almost almost a feeling of relief that finally that waiting for it to actually happen because it had been planned for for uh, for years uh, had finally come through and the cover line was he's done it exclamation mark uh, for that particular mag so that's what I always remember that it was just this thing that had been waited for for so long and it wasn't so much a there wasn't really a, a celebration or anything it was just all right finally that's out of the way so it was it was slightly unusual experience that that particular one but of course you had the green masthead and autosport and everything because it was a a big moment for uh for having another british driver winning a grand prix again and scott nice to have you along for a, a rare bring back v10's appearance what's your standout memory um i think everyone will know what i mean when i say the eyes do you know? Do you? Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I think everyone's got that image in in their head. It's it's it's, it's Jensen getting out of the car, the the the, the image through the visor, um, as he as he is, and he just looks absolutely mad. It's it's so good, and I think it was, 
um, I think it's enshrined in my memory now because I think that also became the freeze frame behind the results. You remember how the graphics used to play out on the broadcast at the time and, they, and it would freeze for a bit and the result, and that would be it. You'd have his eyes wide open. So there's that. But there's also, I've got an honorary mention for this one and it's Anthony Davidson mocking Martin Brundle for missing the race in the seconds after but, uh, Jensen crosses the line and he's like, uh, and Anthony's just, just like, yes, yes, out of Martin Brundle, what are you doing not being here for this? I thought that was absolutely exceptional. It just, um, because you're you're already, like, at the time, I, I've said this before, I think when I've bring, been on Bring Back V10s, being, uh, Jensen was the only driver I was a fan of when I was a kid. Um, and there's already an element there of you're just like super happy because he's just won the race. And then you've just got like a little bit of like commentator on commentator mockery going on. And it just feels super happy. And and it was just, uh, given everything else that was going on at the time, it was a, it was a rare moment of joy for a British F1 fan. Yeah, that was excellent from Davidson. I, th- I thought that was absolutely superb. There were a few shout outs for that from our audience uh, as well. I don't normally share any first memories of mine, but lots of people who got in touch were talking about missing the race live. Um, as as Ed mentioned, being at other events, it was obviously in the middle of summer. People were on holiday. I was on holiday for this race um, on a very very classy holiday uh, in Malia, and uh, I did watch it live. I found a bar that was showing it live. Only one of the ten of us that were there or whatever came with me to watch it. And when I walked back onto the beach during the day, I sort of said aloud. You'll never guess who won the Grand Prix. And one of my friends just turned around and went, I don't know, Jensen Button? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, come on, how did you get that? That ruins everything. Were you missing it Were you missing it out of protest because a certain driver wasn't actually competing in this Grand Prix? Well, obviously, uh, well, having been on holiday, I think I, I only realised when, uh, when they started showing the race that uh, Villeneuve wasn't on the grid, as we'll come to. Um, but I'm sure my friend who listens to this podcast won't thank me for that impression of him. Uh, and I will remind him that even though he didn't watch that race, he's now one of the biggest Jensen Button fans I know. But uh, enough from me. Let's hear from our audience. Yet again, the number of replies to this on Twitter uh, went into three figures. Thank you so much to everyone who joins in with these. It's so much fun seeing what you all come up with. Uh, there were lots of shout outs for Fernando Alonso's stunning drive in this race. Steve Whitfield said the onboard footage in the first few laps was incredible to watch. Adam Corlett called it possibly Alonso's greatest drive in F1. Uh, Kazanaki was another to shout out Alonso's opening laps, which Antonio Santa Maria says were better than Ayrton Senna in Donington 93. And Rob says Alonso was on fire. Black Mask picked Kimi Raikkonen's dramatic collision with Tony Oliuzzi's Toro Rosso, as did WRJ Patterson and F1 Henry. Johnny O says watching an entertaining race at the Hungara ring for the first (laughs) time. I feel like we've had better races in Hungary since then, but back then it was a rarity to enjoy the Hungarian Grand Prix. Lots of you picked, as Scott mentioned, Jensen Button's eyeballs uh, in Park Ferme, thanks to... Just Hun, our very own Oliver Card, Simon Ems, Katie Fairman, Mark Winkelhorst, Michael Golson and Mr. Liam, among many others. And so many people mentioned the commentary at the end of this race. Not only Anthony Davidson, as we've already discussed, but uh, James Allen screaming Jensen Button wins, which I won't try to do justice. Uh, thank you to everyone who mentioned those two uh, behind the mic, including... Lewis Sudderby, Dan Mason, Wookie, Freddie Coates, Gavin Richardson, Rob Young and Ashley Woodhouse. 
As we crack on with Series 7 of Bring Back V10s, make sure you get your questions in for the end of the series when we'll be answering whatever you send us about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. As always, you can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or you can email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And thank you to everyone who just emails in to tell us how much you love the show. I promise I read them all even if I don't have time to reply to every single one. If you'd like to get another exclusive opportunity to submit a question and frankly to significantly increase your odds of getting it answered given we always receive over a hundred questions over the course of a series then you can join the race members club where you'll get an episode after the series that is dedicated just to questions from our members and as well as other bonuses from the race you'll also get early access to every episode of bring back v10s with no adverts but let's start things off for hungry 06 with how the championship battle was shaping up Michael Schumacher had won the previous three races to close a 25-point deficit to Fernando Alonso to 11 points heading into Hungary. No one on either side was getting too overexcited at this stage. Schumacher said the reduced gap was good because now it meant his fate was in his own hands rather than needing Alonso to drop points. Renault were firmly in don't write us off mode. Alonso said he was calm, adding, I was never overconfident when I was far ahead and I'm not panicking now. He also said he felt Renault and Ferrari were both operating at the maximum capacity on car development and the real difference maker between them was the tyre war between Michelin and Bridgestone. Renault boss Flavio Briatore said it was too soon to talk about a Ferrari comeback and he rather colourfully said, let's wait, we bury the dead only when they are cold. Briatore and Renault's Pat Simmons also drew comparisons with 2005 when McLaren got into its stride with the fastest car as the season went on, but Renault still managed to claim a championship double. Scott, how would you assess the state of the title battle in the middle of 2006? Had Ferrari put Renault on the back foot? Uh, well, first of all, I, I, I wanted to point out that I always think it's surprising to remember just how late in the season Hungary was back then. Um my automatic um, response when I was looking at, at this question was because uh, obviously, as you say, like in the middle of two, 2006 was just actually it was like, wow, it was so close to the end, end of the season. I'm just I'm so in modern F1 mode now. It's quite, quite depressing. But um, I believe um, I believe in momentum. And I know that some drivers and teams only believe it either when they have it or when they don't have it, depending on what's convenient to, to claim. Um, but it's clear that Schumacher and Ferrari were in great form. And it was vital because not only did it slash the points deficit, but the hat-trick of wins had come off the back of, I think, four in a row for, for Alonso and Renault. So it was an absolute reversal of, of fortunes. And Schumacher said at the time that one of the key things here was it flipped it from him needing a helping hand to win the championship to it suddenly being in his control. Mathematically, he could win the championship himself, if, if that makes sense. And I think psychologically on both sides, that absolutely makes a big uh, a big difference. The, I think the way I would describe it is Renault Alonso weren't on the back foot necessarily, but they were definitely looking in their mirrors a lot more. It was quite a strange battle between those two as well because it looks from the outside, if you look at the point scoring, that Renault starts strongly, then Ferrari comes back. And that was the case with the results. But I think it was always closer than it looked, certainly at the start of the season. Ferrari found quite a few ways to underachieve early on. They had a few reliability problems, a few grid penalties. 
Bahrain could easily have uh, been a win for Schumacher. So there, there was an execution element there as well. Hockenheim, for various reasons we'll get onto later, Renault wasn't at its best. So that was the previous race. So I, I think we sort of saw two teams having strong runs operationally when they weren't shooting themselves in the foot as well. And then you kind of get a more reflective balance for the for the rest of the season. So it's one of those really interesting ones that when you dig into the detail a bit, it's it's slightly more complicated almost than it looks. But Scott's absolutely right about the way the momentum had transformed that season. And Renault's mid-season form hadn't been helped by the controversy surrounding mass dampers, a clever technical area where Renault had been the pioneer in late 2005. However, the mass damper had been banned a few weeks earlier by the FIA on the grounds that it constituted a movable aerodynamic device. Renault challenged that ban at the German Grand Prix where the race stewards declared it was legal. That led to the FIA appealing the verdict of its own stewards. Then we had a hearing arranged which would take place after Hungary. Renault pushed to be allowed to run the system until the hearing, but in the end it made a last-minute decision not to race with it in Hungary as it feared there could be retrospective punishments if the FIA won its appeal hearing. Renault understandably didn't take this well. Briatore said they were being penalised for inventing something and he said there was a commitment by the FIA with the help of some teams to play against us to give a false result to the championship. Bizarrely, Briatore accused McLaren publicly rather than Ferrari, and McLaren denied this, saying it wouldn't do anything to harm Alonso's title bid, given it had signed him for 2007 and wanted him to bring the number one with him and to arrive as a double world champion. Pat Simmons called the FIA's decision to change its mind on the legality of mass dampers a very strange state of affairs, adding it suggests they didn't understand what they were doing. I would argue they still don't understand now. <laughs> Scott, you've uh, we're not talking about modern F1, but when you cover modern F1, you you deal with a fair few FIA related messes over the years. Does this just show they're always capable of creating confusion when it comes to these legal wranglings? Oh yeah, at one hundred percent. This is a it's a probably a much more extreme example than what I'm uh, used to. But there there was part of this that. Um, there's a there's a Pat Simmons quote where he talks about um, initially receiving notification that the FIA um, would recommend to the Court of Appeal that there should not be retrospective penalties. So they make the decision initially to go ahead and use it in 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 Hungary, keep using it because okay, like worst case scenario, we're not going to lose anything we gained. We'll just have to stop using it from here on. And then obviously that changes. So you can totally see where the confusion comes from um, on on the Renault side. And I love that within this as well. There's that there's there's that element of political needle between the teams. So you've got teams pointing fingers at other teams instead of just attacking the FIA. I mean, the FIA is getting both barrels as well. But this is a, I think this is a, a real classic FIA F1 technical row. I think it, may, it did get me thinking about some of the ones in more recent years, and they're so small fry by comparison to something like this. For it to have descended to this point, where you have just a total amount of confusion and everything's just shrouded in a bit of fog. You've got con- conflicting, not instructions, but advice from the FIA. I love I love it when the FIA is at war with itself, <laughs> where you have the, a technical department or senior figures within the FIA arguing with the FIA-appointed stewards, and it does look like civil war is breaking out. So this was, um, I'm sure for the people involved, uh, it was an absolute nightmare. I think because of the great sporting narrative you had on track, Possibly at the time, and maybe in hindsight, 
this becomes very much a footnote in the rest of the season. But it's absolutely the sort of things that just ratchets everything up a little bit, especially because while you had that dynamic on track of the, the form shifting, I remember at one point during this race, the Hungary race, where Alonso and Schumacher are actually battling. And you realise, actually, this hasn't happened much this year. Just because of the way that it's played out, they haven't gone wheel to wheel that much. So a, a bit of off-track needle as well was just a perfect thing to throw a little bit more spice into the pot. And there was more of that to come this weekend as we'll get to. But Ed, you've studied the Mastan Peral previously, including for uh, videos on our YouTube channel. So knowing what you know about it and everything you've looked up about it, what did you make of it? And do you think it should have remained legal? Yeah, it's quite an interesting one from both a political and a technical regulations case. I mean, the mass damper, tuned mass damper, it should be called, TMD as it was known. So it's basically a weight, 5 to 10 kilos, in a little cylinder mounted on two springs in the nose cone of the car. It's all about controlling, damping the vertical forces, creates a more stable car, holds it in the right aero window, good for consistency. And it was great for evening up the variation in front grip under braking. Renault reckoned it was worth about three-tenths of a second per lap. That's where Pat Simmons put it on average. So the mass damper is a movable device and it had an impact on aerodynamics, but it's not something that's exposed to the airflow. So a conventional movable aero device would be an adjustable wing or something. That That's an obvious version. Now, the FIA or should I, well, the FIA themselves, not the not the stewards at Hockenheim, who they disagreed with, but the FIA argued the mass damper did impact aero performance and couldn't be part of the suspension on the basis it was integrated into the bodywork. And it argued that the aero benefit was independent of other benefits and was the main thing. So it got into the whole primary purpose thing. So Renault were claiming it was only a small aero advantage and that the primary purpose was vibration control. Now, we have to remember that the movable aero regulation doesn't just say you're not allowed movable aero. Article 3.15 applies to any specific part of the car influencing its aerodynamic performance. Now, there was some influence on the aero performance from the mass damper, so that does open up it for consideration under the rule. The rule also says that such parts have to be rigidly secured, and obviously there were moving parts within the mass damper that, that weren't rigidly secured. So it comes down to whether it's primarily an aero benefit or it's for mechanical platform and vibration control, etc. Now, the political avenue, the political dimension is that the mass damper was a variable benefit to different cars. Others had copied it. Renault had pioneered it in late 2005. Ferrari had copied it, but because of the stiffer sidewall Bridgestone tyres, it didn't get as much a benefit. So Ferrari was definitely lobbying against this when it realised its version wasn't so... Uh, so efficient and so effective. So it's a great idea by Renault, well implemented. The Hockenheim stewards did accept that there were legitimate concerns about this tech. So probably the correct approach would have been to, if the FI didn't want it, do what would have been done now, which would say, actually, by the rules now, it's probably legal, but we'll ban it for, for next year or, or whatever, kind of take the DAS-style approach. But this argument over primary purpose, there was no easy answer to it. To use a simple example, the fan car debate, you could measure how much was cooling for the radiator and how much was aero impact, and it was more than 50% for the radiator because that's exactly what Brabham designed it as, so you could measure that. This you couldn't. I do think primarily it was a mechanical benefit in terms of the platform and the vibration control, etc., but it did have an aero benefit. So it was arguable both ways, I would say, but I completely understand why Renault were quite frustrated at the nature 
of the ban and the way it happened because there was a big, big political dimension. I think if Ferrari had got the mass damper working well, they'd have shut up about it, but it just wasn't as beneficial. So it's a really interesting one where it was legitimately under consideration as aero, but it then comes down to how you measure up the balance. But yeah, it would have been better not to ban it out of hand immediately, certainly. The, the primary purpose thing, which obviously is something that we hear about a lot now in, in modern F1, that the fact that that was obviously such an issue at, at the time, it makes it, and I, I think this was at the heart of a lot of the Renault frustration at the, at the time, it makes it really surprising that the FIA would go as far as initially making a binary decision on it. Because the when you read back and look at what the likes of Simmons or even Ross Braun said, there were very much indications that the FAA had decided its primary purpose and that the primary purpose was mechanical, which is why everyone kind of thought you'd get away with it. And that led to um, what I think in from, from Glenn's research was, my, I think probably my favourite quote that got dug up, which was Pat Simmons saying, you can't change your mind about something factual. If Flavio's shirt is blue, it's blue. I was like, well, yes, but <laughs> I, I, I don't want to get bogged down into um into into too much here but by and large what humans consider to be colors that's pretty binary like what's blue and i know that there was this thing a few years ago about like was what color was this shirt was it actually blue but i love that was classic f1 for me that oversimplicate oversimplification of something as complicated and nuanced as the primary purpose discussion and it comes down to a technical director or a team senior team figure just saying yeah but blue is blue it's also one of those things that you can make a good case for it being a good, sensible thing. Pat Simmons made the case that this is exactly what F1 should be doing because it was a really simple device. It was a weight between a couple of springs in a tube. It was that simple. Obviously, the the artistry and how you tune it, etc., is there. But it, you should have worked for Ferrari if it was that easy. <laughs> well, it, it was easy to do. It just didn't just didn't work with other bits of the car. But. <laughs> It's an interesting one because Simmons also said this is a great idea for the automotive industry. You know, tune mass dampers as a concept existed 100 years before that. They were used in building and that kind of thing. So the kind of idea existed, but they were underexploited in terms of the automotive industry. So also from that that technology transfer, there was a good argument for them existing. So I think all of this points me towards the fact that it was primarily the way it was done politically driven in terms of the way they made the decision. They almost decided what outcome they wanted rather than looking at it in, in, a, in a flat way. But it wasn't quite as outrageous as, as, as some might remember it. There was at least a case to be answered. Yeah, Ferrari were very clear that they felt it was uh, illegal and, and they were pretty honest that they weren't getting much benefit from it. So perhaps you can join the dots on those two things. Let's move on to the driver market. Mark Webber's future was in doubt over the summer of 2006, as it was known that Williams wouldn't be taking up an option in his contract to extend it. The reason given at the time was that the option would trigger a big pay hike that Williams now couldn't really afford. There was talk of a renegotiation, but as we'll get to in a minute, that was actually never on the cards. Instead, Weber signed for Red Bull, which was announced in the days after the Hungarian GP. Weber said he was joining the team, which he'd raced for previously when it was Jaguar, at exactly the right time for success in the future. That certainly proved to be true. He praised the work Red Bull had done since taking over Jaguar at the end of 2004, which was when he left, and he expected them to be the most improved team in 2007. Weber said in his book that the Red Bull move was Flavio Briatore's idea and that after Mark had gone against Flavio's suggestion to join Alonso at Renault for 2005, just let that sink in for a moment, Weber understandably didn't want to argue again this time. 
He said the main attraction about Red Bull was that it had lured Adrian Newey away from McLaren and the 2007 RB3 would be Newey's first car for the team. But Weber also felt he didn't have any other options as his stock had taken a big hit at Williams. So Scott, Red Bull, this is very early in the Red Bull story. They had a long way to go before becoming the force they are today in F1. So despite the building blocks that were there being put in place and the benefit of hindsight we have now, was there an element of this being a gamble for Weber when he made the decision in mid two thousand and six? I don't know if it. I don't know if I call it a gamble so much. I think maybe calculated risk because whenever a driver makes a decision like this, you've got um, you've got your push and your and your pull factors. It's right. What what's making you want to leave the team you're at now? What is attracting you to the team that you might join in the future? And we'll go to the push factors in a bit because there were a hell of a lot at Williams <laughs> as uh, as uh, time time would subsequently show. But if you look at just purely what the pull factors were and the position that Weber was in, I, l- I love the fact that he was honest enough to just be like, no big team's going to come in for me. So there's there's a there's just an element of realism um, underpinning the decision that that he wants to make. So then you're looking at in a, actually, funnily enough, considering Alonso was I guess kind of part of this because of that Renault decision that Briatore has suggested to Weber. It's kind of where Alonso's just found himself for the last ten years in Formula One, where you're then looking at right, okay, if I can't get into one of the biggest teams, what what's the best project? What's the team that in the medium to long term is going to benefit me the most? And there it's. You know, there's an irony that Weber then looks at it and just goes, ah, the team that I left is actually on the right trajectory. Um, so I think I might be better off to go back to that. He's obviously been able to avoid the sort of the two-year interim period where there are growing pains with Jaguar becoming Red Bull. So he's not there for that bit. I think certainly for b- before 2000 and six really played out you could say that Williams was at least working in the short term as, as as a move for him and I think he just had a really good outlook for what Red Bull's potential was but also what timeline that would come in for so he was talking about you know in an ideal world fighting for top five in the constructors championship in 2007 with a, a new e-car which he admitted that's still a a very hard challenge for uh, for us to meet but that's that's okay that's that's logical that's ambitious but not fanat- uh, like you know being being drawn into fantasy so i think he just had a really good balance when he was looking at what red bull offered short term medium long term it was like well short term is probably not going to be any worse medium term actually i think there's some low hanging fruit here long term i think this could be one of the biggest teams in formula 1 and i think it's fair to say that history is on mark webber's side there <laughs> Yeah, he got that right. Uh, Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the impact he felt it had on his career, Weber doesn't have many nice things to say about his time at Williams. He certainly didn't uh, in his book uh, where he said that Williams should have suited him because from the outside, it looked like a team of doers. But once he was there, he realised something didn't feel right and no one seemed to enjoy working there. He said Frank Williams and Patrick Head never listened to anything he said because, in his words, they didn't need help. They were still living off their past successes. Weber tried to tell Frank that senior people in the team, such as Sam Michael, who was leading the technical side by this point, were overworked. But that cut no ice and he soon realised he was banging my head against a concrete wall. He added that after Frank and Patrick had told him in the middle of 2005 
that they were disappointed with his performances, they told him it would be fine if he left rather than doing the second season of his original deal, but he stayed because he had no other options and no one else wanted to drive for Williams. He described the team's wind tunnel calibration problems as having two watches, but they didn't know which one was telling the right time. And he said, it's amazing how fast a phenomenal team can implode when success isn't happening anymore. I was there for the first phase of that implosion at Williams. Scott, in terms of what was going wrong for Williams quite early in its decline and everything we've seen actually of Williams since then, how telling is what Weber laid out for us here? Yeah, it's um, it's a very clear sign of um, just how early the rot was setting in uh, at, at Williams, um, and it is it's frightening how um, familiar what Weber says actually is to what we've heard countless times in in recent years. Um, I think at the time it would have been particularly galling for him to realise just how quickly the we've won doing it our way before, so we can continue doing it our way mentality was um was holding Williams back I think we tend to think of that now as probably something that struck Williams in the 2010s you know what when you've had a sustained period of not winning not really fighting for podiums and I consider that much more of a recent thing for Williams where they're just like no no we can we can get back to the front by just doing it the way we always did it the fact that Weber was already feeling this in 2005, 2006, when they'd only just come off the back of still being, you know, race winners and having tighter ambitions is is really worrying and shows just how deep-rooted the problems were. And I think the other thing that was telling from what Weber said in his book, which was absolutely flat out, was um, talking about the the dynamic within the team and the lack of joy that was in there. And he just said, he said that he, got the impression that people at their desk didn't want to be there. They didn't want to be part of this team. And what a, just a, just a miserable environment that must have been to be a part of. And then when, when you've got the finger pointing as well, that immediately starts and, you know, I'm sure Weber wasn't perfect as a driver and that there were things he could have been doing better. But when you've, I can see why he would have felt, and this goes back to what I said about the push factors before, I can see why he would have felt, well, this is a team going nowhere. And if it's going anywhere, it's going backwards. It's going downhill and other directions that I seem to just be mentioning. Um, But there would also have been an element of like, there's no way he feels the love there. And you've got a team that clearly wants to get out of a contract that's going to cost them an absolute ton of money that they can't afford to pay because of the way it's backloaded if he takes up the option. It's an absolute no-brainer for me in that situation to want to get out of that team and environment as soon as possible. And yeah, it was absolutely a precursor of all of the negativity that was to come at Williams and that they're still trying to get out of now. And the most startling thing is what he reflects of the culture at Williams because there's there's obvious problems like they parted company from BMW. They knew that was going to create financial problems. They lost their title sponsorship with HP as a direct result of it etc so they're going through this period of financial retrenchment that followed you know we're not far away from them taking the option of having Kazuki Nakajima in the car so they get free Toyota engines rather than having to pay for them that's what happened for for 2008 and 9 so there were those wider problems but the fact that they'd not realized how F1 was changing and reacted to it in a way. Obviously, the teams were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you have to work harder with your company culture, etc., to actually make it work and integrate departments, etc. And it was just an example of F1 moving along a lot and how Williams 
multiplied their problems. There were certain things that they had to deal with. It was a manufacturer era. They were an independent team by choice, ultimately, having party company with BMW. But that meant they needed to be incredibly sharp with how they operated and ultimately they weren't i think there was still this feeling that we yeah we are mighty williams and it's other external facts it's not completely dissimilar to what mclaren went through kind of five six years ago in the in the honda era where you can point to legitimate problems but then ignore all your own ones so yeah it, it, it's pretty damning from weber who talks about compiling regular reports about what he felt should be done and they just weren't taken seriously by Williams it was very much like we're doing everything right and all our weaknesses are other people's fault the drivers or external problems and that's why Williams although it did a pretty good job in this period to go through the financial retrenchment over the next couple of years it could easily have gone under at this time I think they just didn't work well culturally and technically to actually make the most of of what they had Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Williams decided to promote test driver Alex Wurtz to replace Weber for 2007. This would mark Wurtz's return to full-time F1 racing for the first time since his 2000 season with Benetton. Since then, he'd been a test driver, first with McLaren and then Williams. Frank Williams praised Wurtz's technical understanding and the way he communicated with the engineers. He said Wurtz was popular in the team and stood out above the other candidates. I assume that's not just because he was so tall. So the choice was automatic to pick him as Weber's replacement. Frank admitted to a few doubts about how race-ready Wurtz would be after so long out of full-time competition, but he recalled Wurtz being an aggressive racer during his Benetton years, so Williams felt taking a chance would pay off. Wurtz said he was delighted to return to his natural habitat of racing and thanked Williams for the vote of confidence in promoting him. Ed, Wurtz only did one season for Williams. Had his time passed by this point? Well, he was still only 32 at the time, so he turned 33 before 2007. So there there was life in him. But he had spent six seasons almost entirely on the sidelines. Immense reputation as a a test driver. So it's perhaps less that his time had passed and more that time had changed what he was partly as well. There was an element of it being a marriage of convenience. Verts obviously wanted another crack at F1. Williams needed to avoid spending too much on a driver. He was already there. So I think it worked for them financially. And he had done a great job as Friday driver. His his race pace, his stint paces were very, very good. And as we saw the following year, his race performances often were, were pretty strong. He had some very good races that year. Canada, Nürburgring, Monaco was good. So he did drive well, but qualifying was the issue. I don't think Verts was ever outright the quickest driver in the world but Frank Williams mentioned the word aggressive I think he was really thinking about Wurtz's clash with Schumacher at Monaco all those years ago 
But the problem was, as a single lap driver as well, Verts wanted to be quite aggressive and hustle the car, and the, the tyres the following year didn't allow that. So qualifying was an absolute nightmare for him, which made it really, really difficult. No matter how well you're driving in the race, it's very difficult to make up for that. So I don't think he was without value as a, an F1 driver, but that lack of qualifying ability was a problem. And I think it's all connected to what was motivating Williams at that time. They had him on their books as a test driver. It made sense to use that money as for him as a race driver so that they didn't have to uh, to spend too much because this was increasingly becoming a problem. Yeah, Frank mentioned that uh, Vert Schumacher battle at Monaco twice on two separate occasions. So, uh, And as we've heard from Frank's son, Jonathan, uh, Frank was always enamoured with any driver who was willing to bang wheels with Michael Schumacher. So that was definitely a tick in the Vert's column. Uh, unfortunately, there were some other more immediate uh, driver market stories heading into Hungary, or one more immediate one. Uh, BMW test driver Robert Kubica was called up for his F1 debut to replace Jack Villeneuve. Uh, initially, <laughs> BMW said this was because Villeneuve hadn't recovered from his crash in the German Grand Prix and that no decision had been taken on who would drive for the rest of the year. However, BMW boss Mario Tyson said uh, the team was starting to think about its lineup for 2007 and it was pleased to have a chance to see how Kubica got on during a race weekend. Kubica had been driving a third car on the Fridays of race weekends and said he had been preparing all year for this chance. He was determined not to let BMW down, but he didn't expect it to be easy learning about the parts of an F1 weekend he hadn't contested yet, especially as he hadn't raced at all since competing at Macau in an F3 car at the end of 2005. When he was asked in Hungary why BMW should choose him over Villeneuve for the seat full-time, Kubica joked, maybe the pace? Ouch, Ed, when you've got a driver like Kubica sat on the sidelines, and I'd been to a few races in 2006, and he was always mega to watch from trackside on the Fridays. When he's doing that, does it just become too tempting to ignore if you're BMW? Yeah, it does. And when you've got, as you say, the situation when it's there right in front of you, it's not off testing at Hareth on a quiet Wednesday afternoon or something. It's every single race weekend. It's so easy to make that direct comparison. And if you've got a young driver with a level of ability of a Kubitzer who had his career panned out differently, couldn't well have been a world champion and certainly would have won a lot of Grand Prix without the, the rally crash, then of course he's going to make that impression. And no matter how illustrious the driver you've got on your books is, as Villeneuve was the former world champion, he says someone that appears quicker, then a team will get behind them very, very quickly. And Kubitz's performances once in the car proved absolutely it was the right decision. And it's very telling of Kubitz. You will know he will have gone into that season aiming to do this. He will have thought, right, I've got to make an absolutely compelling case. I've got to make this happen. So it's kind of the plan coming together for him. And he wasn't afraid to strongly make his case, as you uh, commented from the uh, the, the press conference, uh, three-word but telling answer. So, yeah. BMW had to put him in the car, no matter who they had in the other car. And Villeneuve hadn't been too bad that season. He'd been he'd been decent. He wasn't stunning. It wasn't old Villeneuve, but he wasn't a complete disaster. And they had to get him out and put anyone in. It was because Kubica was so strong. I'll take that. After the Hungary weekend, it was announced that Villeneuve and BMW had properly split. 
Tyson said in a statement that BMW's desire to evaluate Kubica had naturally impacted Jack's position for the remainder of the season and that BMW understood it was difficult for Jack to maintain his natural level of commitment in circumstances of uncertainty. Villeneuve released his own statement saying he'd been given no assurances about getting the seat back after the team had tried out Kubica, so it was agreed that they should just split. Years later, in various interviews, Villeneuve has said that he was told by Tyson at the start of 2006 that BMW didn't want him and he was given the option to either take the matter to court to protect his original contract, which he'd signed with Sauber, of course, or he could sign a new contract, which gave BMW the right to take him out of the race seat at any time they wanted. So he signed that rather than getting into a legal battle. Scott, this was the end of Villeneuve's F1 career. The, the, the crash at Hockenheim was his, his last action as an F1 race driver. Was he treated unfairly here by BMW? Obviously, I have to be careful what I say here, otherwise I'm not going to be invited back. You won't um, finish the show. <laughs> yes, be replaced halfway through by a younger, better podcaster. By Robert Kubica. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, uh, what I would say is that there, there is an element here of BMW just being... I think actually quite straight about it from the start. If they've made it clear to Villeneuve that, look, we're kind of inheriting this guy as a driver from the team that we've taken over, that he had a contract with, we, we don't want him longer term. So actually, look, this is the situation. We're probably going to want to replace you at some point. We can either fight this or you can just accept that you're here for basically as long as you last, but there's no guarantee beyond that. So from that point of view, actually think, Maybe they handled it quite well, uh, very, very, um, very firmly, very strong with their position, not giving Jacques uh, much wiggle room at all, but just saying that this is a situation you can either fight it or just go along with it and see what happens. Um, but the other side of it is that it's not a particularly, uh, it's a very corporate way of doing things. It's not a very personable way. And Villeneuve probably commanded a bit more respect than than he was given. Um, he, as Ed said, it's not like he was had either done a bad job with Sauber the previous year or did a bad job in the first half of the season. But there was obviously a there was obviously a trend. I think in 2005, for example, if you look at the balance of um, Vilna versus Massa over the course of the year, uh, it actually looks about the same. But then when you look at the second half of the season, there's a clear trend to Massa getting the most out of it and qualifying, coming back to that Kuvitsa thing about maybe the pace. So... I think you've got a downward trend for Villeneuve in terms of pace. Everyone knows at the time and now sort of his reputation and sort of how difficult he he can be, how peaky he can be as a driver. You've brought in Nick Heidfeld. You've got your German driver who's performing quite well for BMW. That's good from a corporate point of view. And you've got this mega driver on the sidelines as well. I just think when you consider how ruthless F1 is and can be and the ambition that BMW had for its F1 project... I think you've just got to be harsh and blunt about it. Villeneuve didn't really fit into that vision. BMW were quite clear about that. They uh, they were probably a bit nastier with it than they needed to be. But in the end, history has shown that they made the, the, the right decision. And at least they didn't do anything. It doesn't feel like they did anything cloak and daggersy with Villeneuve. It was... It was brutal, but it was very much brutal to his face, which you would like to think that someone like Jacques might at least appreciate, even if it's only a tiny percent. 
It was interesting what he said about it. He said he felt that the stint with the team, obviously during the previous year, had cleansed his image because he'd proved he could work well with teams, wasn't so difficult to work with, that he could still perform at a decent level. So Villeneuve had quite an interesting attitude to that whole thing. He felt that that year and a half, well, almost two seasons, given as what Scott said earlier, Hungary was pretty close to the end of the season with that team had had served its purpose. I want to know whether Glenn thinks it was the right decision, though. Oh, <laughs> um... <clears throat> You can't deny how good Robert Kubica was. Um, they should have got rid of Heidfeld. <laughs> um, now, I'm not going to try and argue it. If you're BMW, you've got this guy. As I say, I'd seen uh, Kubica trackside a few times on those Fridays uh, in 2006. And he, every time I saw him, he was blowing me away um, at the races. So... he, I think he was becoming an irresistible force. And unfortunately... As you mentioned, BMW had one guy that they'd brought in in Heidfeld who had the nationality side thing on his side as well. Um, and they had a guy they didn't want. So, um, you know, Kubica very quickly became, I think, the 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 higher performing BMW driver alongside Heidfeld. I could make a hilarious case for why they should have kept Villeneuve, but that it, yeah, it would have to be that. Let's move on. <laughs> um, because it wasn't only the driver market that was high on the news agenda heading into Hungary. Stories began to emerge uh, first in Italy that Ross Braun was going to leave Ferrari at the end of 2006. Braun gave a not very subtle non-denial in Hungary, saying just saying Ferrari would make its plans known at the end of the season and would focus on trying to win the championship until then. However, in Ross's book with Adam Parr, Total Competition, he said he told Ferrari in 2004 that he planned to step down at the end of 2006, so the team had plenty of time to work out a succession plan. Braun said, I had the view that 10 years was a great time to have at Ferrari. Remember, Ross had joined for 97. A nice round number. It was time to move on to face a new challenge. Give plenty of notice and let's develop the organisation to work without me. He said team boss John Todd and Ferrari president Luca de Montezemolo couldn't see the logic, so they tried to convince him to stay, but had no joy. Ross went on to say that in his mind it was a sabbatical so he could travel the world with his wife for a year and he met with Ferrari bosses again in the summer of 2007 to discuss coming back but he only wanted to do it as team principal and by then Stefano Domenicali was being lined up for that role. Ed, would you have liked to see Braun have a stint as Ferrari team boss? It's not one of those things that I think, oh, I wish that had happened, because obviously Braun's career was pretty interesting after that, so it would have stopped all sorts of things that did happen. We wouldn't have had Braun Grand Prix in that uh, in that particular form, so probably it's for the better he did move on. It potentially could have been good for Ferrari. It would have been a slightly different team principal role to the one he had later on. Initially, Todd would still have been around because it was end of 2007 that Domenicali became team principal, but there were all sorts of problems with Ferrari and the way De Montezemolo wants to operate things that made life difficult for Domenicali as well so I'm I'm not sure it's as simple as had Braun continued Ferrari would have lived up to its potential in the ensuing years I don't think it's that simple it was always about the collective there the, the whole group of them and obviously Todd moved on to chase the FIA presidency quite soon after that so I suspect it wouldn't quite have been as as delightful as you might automatically assume had he he stayed on and, and obviously he was very much a, a technical a technical manager at that point rather than a, a team boss so I think probably it was the right decision for him to uh to move on but 
who knows it might have completely changed the future and ferrari would have won four five six world championships over the next half dozen years but i i don't feel it would have transformed ferrari's destiny and it would probably been worse for braun himself Let's get into the race weekend then. And there was drama during the practice sessions. We don't always say that. Um, as both Alonso and Schumacher picked up penalties for committing various offences. We'll start with Alonso's first penalty, which was for brake testing Robert Dornbos after feeling the Red Bull driver had held him up. Alonso had pulled alongside Dornbos to gesticulate towards him on the start-finish straight, then pulled in front and clearly hit the brakes hard in the middle of Turn 1. Alonso said he was surprised by the penalty because what he did happened all the time when drivers get held up by slower cars who take too long to get out of the way. He added, when you overtake them, you always say something to them to look in the mirror. This happens at every race. There was no accident, no yellow flags and no touching of cars. This is the first time in history that you get a penalty for having discussions with another driver on one corner. Nicky Lauda called what Alonso did stupid and ridiculous adding it was not the way a world champion should drive. Alonso also picked up a penalty for overtaking under yellow flags, which were briefly thrown at the end of one of the sessions, seemingly for no reason, or certainly a few corners too early. And that one did seem a bit unfortunate. But Scott, let's focus on this Dornbos incident. Um, did Alonso deserve to be penalised for what he called basically having a chat? <laughs> yeah, he did, absolutely. <laughs> and his interpretation of the event is just classic Alonso. He just he emits things that happened and he reinvents what the the bit that he's talking about because I I when I, when I've read comments from people like this where you know the louder stuff is is pretty flat out even Bernie Eccleston was um, in favour of the penalty that that Alonso got and you hear Alonso's version like everyone seems to overlook the fact that he also moves across before they even go down to turn one obviously he's going past him and he just moves into them and it's like that's so dangerous that the the, the brake test mid corner I mean it's pretty obvious he slows down and look you can it's, it's if you were being super generous you could argue that and just say well maybe he's just completed his push lap and therefore he's backing off but that even that's a massive stretch but he can't claim he's recharging the hybrid can he <laughs> no exactly exactly um so you've just got everything about it. I think I think if it was limited to he's really annoyed, he's um you know, he's 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 flipped in the bird as they've driven past on on the straights and he's dawdled a little bit through turn one or something like that, I think that's fine because that's just a racing driver being annoyed behind the, the cockpit. But the move in a straight line, the the pointless brake test, it, it's it's stupid and it's dangerous. So I think it's I think it's valid to penalise it. But there's another thing that Lauder and Eccleston both flagged, which is, you know, this was the world champion as well. And I know that some people don't agree with this kind of thing, but that there absolutely has to be a consideration for the example that gets set. Because one of the things that I've seen over the years, especially in junior categories, is you can see incidents in Formula One just be mirrored in the junior categories. I don't think it's as much of a problem now, but I remember a few years ago, I think this was something that wound you up, Glenn, but there was a pl proliferation in junior categories of the pole man just sweeping across to squeeze the other car the second the start sort of happened. And you'd have people squeezing towards the track edge or even the pit wall, and that comes from Formula One. And I'd, I don't think anyone wants to see something like... if. You don't want to let a driver get away with, if you're um, annoyed, use your car as a weapon or use your car to threaten someone else. That is ultimately what Alonso did. So the, the penalty was absolutely justified. 
It's also just really stupid on Alonso's part, isn't it? Because what's the relevance of Dornbos? He's a completely irrelevant driver. He's not, he's not making a point against a title rival or something. Dornbos is a good driver, but he's just not. He shouldn't really be in Alonso's thinking. It just shouldn't matter. So why get yourself a penalty for trying to make a point against someone that, that just doesn't matter to you? Why? What's What's the point of Robert Dornbos? <laughs> Yeah, that's the next T-shirt on the Bring Back V10 shop. Um, title rival Schumacher also picked up a penalty of his own, which was for overtaking under a red flag on his way back to the pits during Saturday practice when Jensen Button's Honda engine expired. Schumacher accepted that he was responsible for the mistake, but he quite cryptically said, if you watch the pictures, you may understand why I was doing what I did. They explain more than I can with words. He could have, as we're about to explain, he could have explained it with words perfectly fine. Because when that footage emerged, and it's in the 2006 F1 season review, it became clear what Schumacher was talking about. At the penultimate corner of the lap, which is the last one before the pit entry, Alonso suddenly slows right down on track. Uh, Kubica's BMW hits the brakes to stay behind him, but they then go so slowly that Schumacher drives around the outside of them both on his way back to the pits. Alonso played innocent at the time, saying he had no idea what had happened and it was a surprise to him and to Renault. However, that F1 season review also featured his radio communication from the time, so let's have a listen for ourselves. Coming slowly, mate. Coming very gently. With red flag. One is near one Kubica. Sorry, mate. Who did? Michael Sumaker of Tuktuk. And now coming to the pit in front of us. Okay, so it was you and Kubica that Michael overtook then. The incident was in turn 13. Okay, thanks. We're talking to Charlie, so. <laughs> so I think we can establish that clears up that Alonso certainly knew what had happened immediately. And while it's it's not very clear because the pit entry siren goes off at the same time, I'm pretty sure you can hear his engineer say fantastic when Alonso confirms it was Schumacher that overtook him. Alonso later denied slowing down too much, saying the stewards had seen all the data. And he said that if you decide to overtake two cars around the outside, as Schumacher did, it's because you decided to do it not because they slowed down too much and it happened by accident. Ed, what do you think of all this? Were Alonso and Renault playing games here? Well, it was a pretty simple game, if they were, and Alonso might well have known Schumacher was there and tried to create those conditions. Certainly he was going very slow. You can see from the onboard from Kibitza, Kibitza sort of behind him wanting to kind of go, but he just lifts off and breaks and just accepts that he's got to sit behind him. So... Regardless of how consciously Alonso set that up, it was a very, very, very simple trap. And I think we've talked before how Schumacher kind of had difficulty coming to terms with making a mistake. So I think that's kind of reflected in his comments as well. That he almost wasn't able to say to himself, well, that was a bit stupid, wasn't it? Regardless of what Alonso was doing. Alonso was driving slowly back to the pits under the red flag, which is what you're meant to do. It's not like he suddenly stamped on the brakes when Schumacher was right behind him and shaved off 150 kilometres an hour and went, ah, it was that. not the greatest trap in the world, Exactly. I mean, I said Alonso was stupid for getting caught up with Dornbos. I think Schumacher was pretty stupid to get tricked into uh, this ultimately, and no wonder Alonso and Renault were <laughs> pretty happy with it. I mean, you could say all fair's in, all's fair in love, war and F1 on that, can't you? Alonso didn't fundamentally do anything wrong. If he created the conditions to lay that trap, very possible he did, then 
he was probably absolutely delighted and probably found it quite funny that, that Schumacher fell into it because Schumacher could just have done what Kibitza did and just stayed behind. Yeah, he only had to wait one corner. Now, you may have noticed I've not been very clear on what these penalties were for these offences, and there's a good reason for that. Alonso and Schumacher were given two-second time penalties that applied to each segment of qualifying. So whatever time they did in Q1 would then have two seconds added, and they would only progress to Q2 if they still made the cut after the penalty was applied, and then the same would happen again in Q2. And if they made it to Q3, it would happen again there. They both made it through to Q2, even with the penalties, but were both knocked out in the middle segment, with Schumacher 12th fastest and Alonso 15th. Meanwhile, Button's engine failure in practice meant he got the traditional 10-place grid penalty for an engine change that we're all more familiar with. So that put him 14th, which also bumped Schumacher up a place to 11th. But especially given you two both still cover current F1 where, you know, grid, we have plenty of grid penalties, but they are all position based. Let's talk about these. I'm interested to know what you both think of them. We'll come to you first, Scott. Are these time penalties for the qualifying segments a good idea? And should we use them today in some form? Um, the, the bit I like about them is that they, um, they bring the penalty front and centre. So, um, it's very obvious what a driver has to overcome the consequence of it and known straight away. One of the issues, I think, with the grid penalty system is that you're always then trying to work out the grid in hindsight. And we know that modern F1 has a particularly complicated way of, of, of setting a grid with working from an empty grid as a starting point and leaving gaps. And it's a, it's very it's, it, it kind of makes sense, but also doesn't. So there's that element to it that I like, the immediacy of it that just um, sort of resolves it. How you'd actually implement it now, I think is tougher to to work out because, and I don't want to, I don't want this to sound like a slightly lazy comparison, but I I think it's fair to say that the gap from front to back now is a lot more condensed than it was in 2006, for example. So if you slapped a two second penalty on someone now, I think that has a bigger consequence, for example. So you'd have to work out like what would be a sort of acceptable reference for it whether it's a perce- I think percentage based might be the way to go because obviously different tracks are so many different lengths a half second penalty in one track is is nothing but one another track it's the difference between Q1 Q2 or a Q3 progression so that would maybe need a bit of fettling whether you could have something that um sort of was flexible that would just cause <laughs> I would open another can of worms entirely I'm sure with how F1 is these days but not against it in principle purely because I do like that immediacy of it. And it's so easy for you to judge. And I actually think, in a way, would heighten a little bit of the jeopardy and enjoyment of a qualifying session if you can see how close a driver is as it happens to negating their penalty or being eliminated. It's one of those ideas that's sort of quite appealing, isn't it? But Scott's absolutely right about the the gaps would need to be fettled a bit. For example, in Hungary this year, in order to have got out of Q1, if you had a two-second time penalty, you'd have needed to eclipse the pole time from Q3, which <laughs> would be pretty unlikely with track evolution, etc. The, the one danger with this sort of thing is, is if you have a, a tariff and a certain amount, sometimes people will spend these. depends how you use these penalties. I don't think Alonso, if it, it 
would have been thinking, oh, I can spend two seconds on getting point to see an Oil Robert Dawn boss. But if you start using it for engine penalties and that kind of thing, you'll still get a strategy because people think, oh, actually, this race, we could still do this because of the, the pace of the lap, etc., and our pace uh, pace there and, and not lose out so much with it. But it did make qualifying quite interesting because then you had, uh, you had drivers who could advance through sessions and still had to decide whether they wanted to try and get into Q3 and have the starting fuel locked in, etc. So it's sort of one of those ideas that's quite nice just as a basic principle. When we think about the detail, it can be quite complicated, but it does have the potential to make qualifying quite interesting for a, a penalised driver. I suspect that, yeah, the devil is in the detail and it wouldn't quite work as you'd hope in reality. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, nice idea, very difficult to tune um track to track and and possibly with the with the divide we still have between the big teams and the small teams i think you you'd need to be you'd have to give you know red bull a bigger time red bull driver a bigger time penalty than a, a midfield driver so maybe it wouldn't work but uh it, it was fun here definitely let's go on to race day um which was wet which i don't think we'd ever seen in hungary before then and Kimi raikkonen's mclaren led the first 17 laps from pole position but behind Alonso and Schumacher initially, and then certainly Alonso after that, were putting on a masterclass in the opening laps. Schumacher went from 11th to 4th on the first lap, while Alonso went from 15th to 6th. Alonso's charge continued while Schumacher's stalled once his Bridgestone intermediate tyres started to overheat. Behind them, Button was making more steady progress. He climbed from 14th to 11th on the opening lap, but then... He started getting his head down. He was up to fourth by lap seven behind Alonso and they'd both passed Schumacher by this point, both putting pretty good moves on him as well. Alonso wasn't done yet, though, and by lap 18, he took the lead when Raikkonen pitted. And to be honest then, Alonso just disappeared up the road. Raikkonen rejoined 23 seconds off the lead, but by the time he crashed out, just a handful of laps later, he was already 39 seconds behind Alonso. Ed, Schumacher's early laps were impressive before his tyres went off. But as our listeners said at the start, how good was this opening stint from Alonso? Someone recommended watching the onboards. I've done that. You watch it and to me, it's like he's playing a video game and he's got the difficulty setting wrong. Yeah, it, it was outstanding and if you watch the the onboard he had a decent start the initial launch wasn't great initially he was following Schumacher up up the outside line Schumacher got up to to fourth place but there's a point where David Coulthard just squeezes across and that robs him of the momentum so actually Alonso still only 10th really approaching turn four because he's had to battle with Ralph Schumacher and, and that kind of thing but it's particularly that second half of the lap when he's he, he does have that feel of, of the difficulty setting because you can see he can carry more speed than people into corners and he's getting on the power way earlier. The way he passes Kibitza is just basically getting the power down and just passing him in, in, in a place where there's no space to pass in that sequence towards the, the end of the lap of the, the, the lefts and rights after the chicane. Now, there were factors at play here. The Michelin intermediates worked very, very well. There was actually quite a lot of uncertainty before the race about that. I think this is the first wet race they'd been for about a year. Bridgestone historically had the advantage in those conditions so the feeling wasn't that necessarily the Michelins would be great but clearly the Michelins are working they got their tyre pressures right and Alonso of course was able to hustle the car get the tyres working and he had the absolute confidence to go for the grip using some of those karting lines on the outside where there's a little bit more grip and you can also see the way he's driving he he's able to attack the corner 
and then there's a little bit of understeer that comes in and he could just wait for the understeer to dial out and then when the understeer goes it doesn't just suddenly switch to a big a big moment the grip just comes and he can get on the power so it's a combination of the car tires and driver working really really well and this is just such a memorable start. It's classic Alonso. And I think it's something that would be remembered even more had Alonso actually, as we'll get on to later, should have done, won this race, which will actually go down as one of his, his classic victories, I think. So just brilliant from Alonso and much, much more difficult to execute than what Schumacher did in jumping to fourth. Because Schumacher, to his credit, he was able to do it all basically in the first few seconds of of the race but Alonso really had to w- work hard and obviously there was an advantage because the Bridgestone intermediates they were they were too hard a compound they were expecting higher temperatures so the Bridgestone shod cars were struggling uh, as well but fundamentally it was Alonso that made the most of the opportunity that was there absolutely brilliant let's talk about Raikkonen's crash next uh, it's a pretty scary one to watch back Tony Liuzzi slowed down coming out of turn five to let Raikkonen through uh, shout out for the Toro Rossos. They were the only V10 cars in this race. Uh, but Liuzzi <laughs> stayed on the racing line and Raikkonen spotted too late what was going on. So he slams into the back of Liuzzi and goes up over the side of his car right in front of um, the other McLaren of Pedro de la Rosa, actually. Raikkonen said he could do nothing to avoid the accident and there was nowhere to go once Liuzzi slowed down so much. Liuzzi apologised, saying uh, Raikkonen probably hadn't expected him to slow down where he did, but he was trying to get out of the way as quickly as possible because overtaking is so difficult at the Hungara ring. Scott, how would you assess this one? Should Raikkonen have been paying more attention, or was was it Liuzzi's fault? Yeah, it was a scary one, and initially it looked like, when I remember thinking this at the time and, and watching it back, still have the same initial opinion. It just looks like Raikkonen's been careless. Um, but you can see him actually try to move to avoid Lutzi at the absolute last minute. That's how unexpected it, it was. And there's a reasonable gap between the two cars before then, but I think it's fair for Raikkonen to think that that gap's not just going to disappear that quickly. I think it's fair for him to probably think that he's too close for that to be where Lutzi's just going to move aside. Um, and I can see what Liuzzi was saying, trying to get away as, out of the way as quickly as possible. But if he wants to do that, just move offline. If you're going to, I, that's the way I see it. If you're going to slow down on any kind of straight or in a straight line, you have to get out of the way to do it because the, there's no brake lights on a Formula One car. You can't see what they're doing. So, yeah, I, you have a, a degree of sympathy for Liuzzi in that. You can see he's trying to do the right thing, but he just does it in a clumsy way. And I don't really think it's Raikkonen's fault that he then ploughs into the sort of back quarter of the car, which is what then I think triggers it into such a dramatic one, where it almost for a brief period looks like Raikkonen's just going to go over and over and it's going to be even more dramatic than it was. In the end, it only ended up being really dramatic rather than extremely dramatic. <laughs> I think probably De La Rosa's presence was a complicating factor because there was some discussion about him being that pass because he'd been absolutely closing in at a rate of knots on Raikkonen. So I think Raikkonen was also looking a little bit at that. Maybe if De La Rosa hadn't been there and he hadn't been sort of thinking about whether he was going to let him pass, etc., he might have been a bit sharper on the Lietzi thing. So just one of those conditions when perhaps he was thinking about two things at once. Someone else who had their, his fair share of incidents in this race was Michael Schumacher. So we'll group them all together here. Early in the race, when he was battling with Alonso's teammate Giancarlo Fisichella, he tries to get a switch back on the Renault at the first corner, but he clips 
the back of it and damaged his front wing. Then after the safety car for the Raikkonen crash, he just wallops the side of David Coulthard's Red Bull and they both spin. And his race finally ended right near the end when he made contact with Nick Heidfeld as the BMW passed him in the closing stages of the race when Schumacher had stayed out uh, on intermediates as the track dried. We'll discuss that later. Um, basically, he became a mobile chicane and then broke his suspension when he clashed with Heidfeld. Ed, what was going on here? Was this just Michael Schumacher having a not very Michael Schumacher kind of day? Yeah, there was a bit of that. It did seem absolutely tailor-made for Schumacher. He was the man on form. He'd had that run of success. The conditions were there. The confidence in the Bridgestone wet tyre performance compared to Michelin, which was actually misplaced, uh, just meant that it all seemed to be pointed to him. And when he catapulted up the order instantly, it just seemed absolutely uh, set up for him. But we should say there were circumstances that that led to this in the race. As I mentioned, the, the Bridgestone wet tire they were just they were just too hard because they were expecting it to be summer in Budapest with this race given it was summer in Budapest but it was not just wet it was cold as well so they struggled a lot and that that meant there were there was a phase in the race where Schumacher on those tires was really quick when the conditions were right but early on it was very very difficult because they couldn't get the core of the, uh, the compound switched on and they were getting surface overheating from sliding around so a bit like the Alonso tyre situation created the conditions to do what he did. The tyre situation and the strategy as well, the, the way it played out, created the conditions for Schumacher to have a messy race. He certainly didn't make the most of it. But I think if you kind of work back through it, that pre-race expectation that it could all go Schumacher's way was a bit misplaced. So you kind of have to set the bar. This certainly wasn't Schumacher throwing away a race he should have won through just making lots of mistakes. I think it was Schumacher making some uncharacteristic errors and he was off track several times, probably more than any other race I can think of, because there were things that that went against him. So he certainly didn't deal with it perfectly, but yeah, it, it just wasn't the the opportunity that it, it looked like. But it does stand as one of the races that almost went worst for, for Schumacher and Ferrari. And sometimes you do get this in the wet, just things get away from you because just everything is wrong. At the front of the race, the safety car had wiped out Alonso's lead and Honda had kept Button out to move him up to second as he'd taken on a lot of fuel at his first stop. Once Button had dealt with some unhelpful backmarkers, he began to hunt Alonso down in what I think watching it back is a is brilliant flat out chase between the two of them. Button gave some great insight on this race during lockdown in 2020 when Sky Sports in the UK did a watch along with him and they've put that on their youtube channel so go and look for it it's also i think it's on f1 tv as well on the fight with alonso he said uh we're in pretty good shape the car feels good i'm at one with the car but i also don't know what fernando and Renault are really up to they're on a different strategy i don't know how much fuel they have on board but he's the guy out front that we're aiming for the big part is the pressure. We're half a second quicker at the moment, so it's about piling that pressure on. Fernando probably thought he was onto an easy winner. Michael's far back in the field. He doesn't want me pushing him. It's a great feeling when you're the car behind and you're pushing the car in front. Pressure is king at that moment. So Scott, at the time, we didn't know the respective fuel loads, but was this the moment where suddenly it looked like Button could really win this, even if it went all the way to the wire in a straight fight with Alonso, because he, you know, he caught him here, didn't he? 
Yeah, uh, the way that the race is um, shifting, especially as it's going through different phases, um, a race like this isn't straightforward and, and it's very much a, an alive thing just because you're quick when it's at the tracks at its wettest or then as the track starts to dry or whatever, at different phases on different tyres in different states, it's a, it's a moving target. So just because Alonso had looked so strong at the start, for example, and there was definitely a point in the first phase of the Grand Prix where you're like, well, he's got this race absolutely wrapped up. No one's going to get near him. Things play out slightly differently and suddenly Button comes into the picture. And I, I think this was legitimate that the race was slowly coming towards him. Um, you mentioned his slower progress early on but obviously he did um, gradually pick his way through he, he he got ahead of Schumacher and I'm glad that you mentioned the back markers because I remember watching at the time and just being absolutely infuriated just be like what what are you doing let him go he said well I think he was three seconds behind Alonso at the race or something like that and it was just like oh come on he's got to be able to just attack him but once that once it played out um or once rather that had ended and it allowed the race to play out in a straight fight. He was so fast and started to really hound Alonso. So I think at this point, at the very least, it looked like a straight fight, as far as you can tell without actually knowing the fuel strategy. That direct fight at the front was paused briefly when Button was the first to pit, so he was on the slightly lighter fuel load. And with the track almost ready for the switch from worn inters to fresh dry tyres, we can't call them slicks because they had those horrible grooves in them, he was only given a splash and dash of fuel and he kept the same tyres on. Button's engineer Andrew Shovlin, who is still at the same team now as Mercedes, today explained on the Sky Watch Along that the splash of fuel was only to get us through to dry conditions. Button said his concern at this point was if Alonso had enough fuel to hang on until it was time to switch to dry tyres, but fortunately Alonso had to come in a few laps before the track was really ready for it. And this was where Alonso's race ended. As he came out of the pits, his car looked very unstable approaching Turn 1, now on the groove tyres, but then he gathers it all up and when he gets to turn two, you see his car shed a wheel nut and he spins into the barriers. Renault said it was a wheel nut failure rather than it simply not being tightened up enough. Maybe that was covering for an unsafe release. But the result was the same. Alonso was out on the spot. Button said on the Sky Watch Along that Alonso's crash gifted him the race. But he added, it's a shame because I think we would have had a great race. Ed... Do you think, firstly, that we were robbed of a, a real showdown here? And how do you think it would have played out if Alonso had got to the finish? We were certainly robbed of the chance to see exactly how it would have played out. I think if you look at the way it was working, I suspect Alonso would have been fine. We don't really know because as soon as he came out of the pits on those slicks, he was, he was well, on the dry tyres, as you say, I should say, he was doomed and he lost some time in the first corner having a big moment, but that's probably because the wheel wasn't attached. So... If you look at it, Alonso was 14 and a half seconds clear at the start of the lap he came in on. Button was closing at about 1.5 seconds a lap at that point. So maybe it was 13 seconds when Alonso came in. So all of that. And then Button was about 10 seconds ahead when Alonso comes out of the pits. Button said on the watch along that he reckons Alonso would have lost five seconds on that lap. So maybe that's 15, 16 seconds, something like that. It was fractionally early, but I, I can't see Button in that small window would have had enough pace relative to Alonso to open up the gap to pit and stay ahead. He only pitted three laps later. Based on what Shovlin said, there might have been another lap's worth of fuel. I think he said there were 12 laps of fuel there. But obviously, once Alonso was out, they didn't have to worry about extending, so they could just take it whenever. So 
I, I don't feel that Button would have been able to to do it in that stint. So it's then a question of how far behind Alonso he would have he would have come out. I suspect Alonso would have made the slicks work pretty well. We know how good he was in those sorts of conditions. I think he'd have got the tyres up to temperature pretty strongly, and he's a very very good person to have trying to find pace in slightly tricky conditions. So. I think Alonso had this race won, but there's enough uncertainty to say it's not absolutely 100%, which is a shame because actually I think this race does have to go down or should be remembered as a, as a potential great lost Alonso victory just as much as it was a, a button breakthrough. With Alonso out of the race then, the door was open for Schumacher to make inroads in the championship and that led to Ferrari taking a strategy gamble. Once the track dried out and everyone else had come in for dry tyres, Schumacher stayed out. This got him back up to second when he'd been sixth before the stops started with all of his incidents and adventures earlier. But by the closing stages of the race, uh, we're on a fully dry track. And by this point, Schumacher became hopelessly slow. He somehow held McLaren stand in De La Rosa at bay for lap after lap, helped a little by the track still being wet offline. So De La Rosa couldn't just lunge him. But De La Rosa wasn't impressed, saying afterwards that Schumacher was defending his position a little too much for his pace and that he didn't expect Michael to battle that hard. Schumacher eventually went off and cut the chicane as De La Rosa attacked him. Michael rejoined still in front, then appeared to back off to let De La Rosa through, only to then turn in on him as they got to the next corner. When De La Rosa attacked again at the chicane, Schumacher again went off and cut it, but this time he slotted in behind him. Scott, what did you think of De La Rosa's complaint here? Was Schumacher defending too much, given how slow he was on those tyres? I have to question who Pedro thought he was racing uh, <laughs> to, to, to have that opinion. Um, look, Schumacher's tyre to rivals out of the race. The win's not on the cards. He's hanging on to whatever he can get out of this, and he knows that there's a chance here to gain some points back in the championship. And you never know what's going to happen because the race has already been pretty chaotic up to this point. So, of course, Schumacher's going to fight tooth and nail for it, regardless of how quick he actually is, because he's had some success so far just, just about holding De La Rosa off, and there, there, there really isn't that much of the race left. So you've got a combo of a driver who is... Um, what's, a polite, what's a podcast-friendly way of saying this? He's difficult when defending anyway. Um, the championship context the track conditions that meant going offline would be difficult for De La Rosa and that Schumacher yielding any ground could be a problem for him. So I think perfectly reasonable for him to do everything he can, which he did, but he did a bit more than that. And while I think it's mad to suggest he shouldn't have defended hard just because he was slow, he absolutely could have been more fair with it. But that's um, that's Michael Schumacher. <laughs> True. Schumacher's pace got worse and worse from this point once De La Rosa gets through. As we mentioned earlier, he retired right near the end after contact with Heidfeld broke his steering. Ferrari's big leaders, so that's Schumacher, Tot and Braun, all described the race as a missed opportunity to make up ground on Alonso, but they all defended the strategy gamble. Schumacher said, we could have surrendered a spot or two um, by pitting to get a few points, but that's the way I am. I always want to fight for the top, which is why I have won so often. Todd said it was easy to criticise with hindsight, but there was no point crying over spilt milk. Although he added that Ferrari could have told Schumacher not to fight so hard and just to pick up any points he could. And Braun said the Ferrari pit wall thought Schumacher would be able to hold on. Button commented on this as well while watching the race back in 2020, saying Schumacher had passed the point of no return and he had to stay out. 
and hope for the best. Ed, the, taking the strategy gamble in the first place, with Alonso out of the race, was this a needless risk from Ferrari? Yeah, I think in retrospect, they perhaps should have changed course once Alonso was out. There was a point where they could have pitted and he probably still would have finished on the podium and taken quite a few points. And remember, with the point scoring system then, you're only gaining two points if you finished ahead of your, uh, your, your championship rival and by winning the race. So, you know, gaining five, six points is pretty significant. But I just think it, just that everything caught them out. They expected the tyres to hold up better and then Schumacher didn't do the best job of uh, uh, of managing the, the decline in the race. Ross Braun did admit at the end of the season that he just wished he told Schumacher just not to fight so hard. Just said, right, just just make sure you, you bring the car home. But yeah, when your title rival is out of the race through what was ultimately the pit will ultimately appear to be a self-inflicted wound. You've got to make sure you gain at least something. And uh, and they didn't. And that was partly down to the strategy, but also partly down to Schumacher just fighting that little bit too hard in that closing phase of the race. All of that drama was taking place a long way behind Button, who was cruising to his maiden victory by this point. Button said at the time that the final 10 laps were the best of his career, as he had a massive lead and could just enjoy it and let the fact that he was about to take his first win sink in. Watching it back with Sky, he added, The chequered flag came around too quickly. I had so much going through my mind in the last laps, it just went in the blink of an eye, and I really wished the race was longer than it was. So many emotions over the last six years of Formula One. The good, the bad, the ugly, and then finally this was going to be it. The first win of my Formula One career with a team that had worked so hard for it. Scott, Jensen wanted the race to be even longer. As a Button fan, were you enjoying these final laps as much as him or were you just desperate for it to end and for him to see the chequered flag? Yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to finish and just get a, because um, look, far be it for me to question the um, authenticity of what Jensen said there. I'm sure there are parts of it where he's absolutely savouring the moment and that emotion is swirling as he goes towards the end. And I also admire the honesty of um, saying that he was thinking this is it this is my first win I'm going to win I, I love that because so many drivers would just lie and say oh no you can't think about that because anything can happen blah 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 so I wasn't really letting myself believe it that's nonsense if your first win's on the line of course you're thinking about it what I do question is whether Jensen really wanted that to go in on any longer I just can't believe that any driver in that scenario does because like I say it kind of with the Schumacher situation so much has happened in that race already you've got no idea what's going to come next you don't know if there's going to be more rain you don't know if there's going to be a sudden safety car or a problem you don't know if your engines are going to just suddenly blow up so like it did in practice yeah exactly so I, I just I just refused to believe that he was sat there just thinking like, nah, I could do another 10, 15 minutes of this. This is fine. Button was on top of a very happy podium with De La Rosa taking his first uh, podium finish, standing in for the departed Juan Pablo Montoya at McLaren. And Nick Heidfeld claimed BMW's first top three finish as a team owner. Further back, Kubica finished an event for an incident-packed debut uh, in seventh, but he was excluded post-race for his car being two kilograms underweight that promoted Schumacher into the points even though he'd not been running at the finish BMW said Kubica's car was underweight because like Schumacher he had stayed out on intermediates until the end and he'd done 51 laps on them in drying conditions so the tyres had lost so much rubber that it made the car underweight 
BMW boss Mario Tyson called Kubica's performance the perfect first race, although Kubica disagreed, criticising himself for spinning early on and then hitting the barriers later and losing his front wing, which he said forced him onto that strategy of not pitting again and keeping inters until the finish. Kubica said, The result was good, but my driving was not. I made too many mistakes. Scott, was Robert being a bit harsh on himself there? Um, harsh but fair because I think Tyson's um, summary of it is just a little bit um, it's a bit too generous really I mean it just absolutely wasn't first of all like from any context that was not the the perfect first race first of all it wasn't perfect from a if you're just envisaging how your first race in Formula 1 is going to go you don't pick a race that starts wet is absolutely chaotic conditions are really hard to read the best drivers in the world are making mistakes around you and it's just a nightmare from start to finish. So it's not perfect from a circumstance point of view. And as Robert completely rightly holds his hands up to, he wasn't perfect in how he dealt with that. There was the there was the spin early on. There was the other one that broke the front wing. Um, but what I would say, and this is why I say it's harsh, is that while it was his debut um, in tricky conditions, there's a reason he was so good and so good for so long is that he has very high standards so he would have looked at that and said okay it was difficult but I expect myself to to meet that challenge in a better way than I actually did uh, in a race like that though it is about as making as few mistakes as possible and basically be as quick as you can when you're pointing in the right direction and to Kubitz's credit especially with the fact that he then ends up on that suboptimal strategy to try and salvage something I think overall I think you say he did at least as much right in that race as as he did wrong and um, yeah, with, uh, with with all respect, I think uh, I think Jack Villeneuve's not finishing higher than either of those two places in that car. Well, I mean, needless, needless dig. <laughs> We're getting to the end of the podcast, so I feel like I can actually. Uh, you can't kick me off at this point. I so. can, and I will. <laughs> I think the funny thing is as well that Kubica will have almost rolled his eyes at Tyson's description of that being the perfect debut, because as Scott said, he does set high standards for himself and those around him. If you speak to anyone who's worked with Robert Kubica, he is a very, very hard taskmaster. He does go to extremes on that. So there's no way you can say to a driver who could easily have been out of the race early on given the, the mistakes he made um uh, has done a uh, done a perfect job but pretty soon he's on the podium so he, he justified it but I, I think we also have to remember as well that just as with Schumacher and Alonso there's always reasons for this and BMW got the tyre pressures wrong for him in that first stint which made life difficult so he didn't deal with that so well but it's always how you react to these little problems and things that that come up it wasn't that he was completely suddenly kind of completely incompetent and incapable of driving in the wet there was something that was wrong that he didn't perhaps clock as quickly as he should have done and that's probably what frustrated him that he realized he should have just dialed it back a little bit early on and accepted that the tires weren't where they needed to be we'll leave it there for hungary 2006 then although uh, that's not the last time we'll veer into the v8 era in this series uh, we've been doing one of these per series before but they're they're always popular with our audience so for this series we've added a second V8 race that you can hear in a few weeks' time. Thanks to Ed and to Scott for joining us for this one. Next time out, we're sticking with a V8-related subject, but we're heading back 16 years to find it, as we revisit Jean Alesi's first full F1 season in 1990 with Tyrrell, where he put in some memorable giant-killing performances on track, and off track found himself at one point signed with three different teams at the same time for 1991.
The Athletic.